Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Good morning, church. Good morning. I got way too much going on up here. Uh, <laughs> um, as Kathy uh, mentioned, I am um, from, well, I was pastoring in Oakland, California. Now I actually currently live in Chicago. Uh, I work for our denominational, national denominational office, and uh, I'm the director of racial righteousness and reconciliation uh, for our denomination. So a lot of what I do is go around the country uh, preaching, teaching, training, um, equipping congregations and leadership teams to more faithfully pursue multi-ethnicity and live into the biblical call for uh, diversity. Um, And so... I'm originally from Atlanta, uh, Georgia, uh, born and raised there, um, then went and did a graduate program in the Appalachian Mountains, which was a very different um, <laughs> lived experience for me. Um, then I moved to Chicago and did my seminary there, uh, taught at the seminary for a little while after being a student, and then I moved out to Oakland, California, where I pastored two different multi-ethnic churches, both of which were majority Asian American congregations. <laughs> I moved back to Chicago to take this position. So that's a little bit about kind of who I am, kind of my story, how I got here, and as I said, we have a common friend in Iwe. Um, Iwe was someone who I had done discipleship stuff with for about seven years, and then I ended up discipling his now wife, Estee Belize, as well, and so just through walking with them, we crossed paths, and then just most recently, uh, we crossed paths again when I was uh, officiating UA and Estee's wedding a couple months ago uh, in the Bay. So, um, God uses things that you would never think. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have never thought that I would end up being here um, preaching uh, to your congregation, but I believe that God has a word, and I'm here to help deliver that word and be a mouthpiece of the Lord to try to encourage you as you've tried to live into um, this value for your church, which is a critical value um, in the midst of the racially segregated and divided world in which we live. Um, and as Kathy said, it is truly through our ability to uh, bear witness in a countercultural way to the world that knows nothing but the vision to manifest unity um, through the spirit um, in lines in which uh, the world doesn't recognize is part of how people come to know who God is and the goodness of God. Um, and so I'll start with a couple of broad. Uh, biblical truths about diversity and then we'll narrow it down and come to a scriptural passage which I'm guessing this is probably the first sermon that you've probably heard from the book of Numbers um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell that with a passage from the Gospels that help us uh, press into this a little bit more intentionally so um God's original intent always has been for humanity to celebrate diversity as a gift. Um, From the beginning of scripture through the end of scripture, Genesis through Revelations, we see God affirm this desire for humanity. Starting with creation, moving into the 12 tribes of Israel, which represent diversity, um, 
stretching all the way through Revelations, where in 79 we're told, as Kathy just told us, that every nation, tribe, people, and language will stand before the throne of the Lamb, to Revelations 22, the last book of Scripture, uh, where we are told that the angel of the Lord will reveal the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river, we are told, there will be a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, which again point back to the 12 um, tribes of Israel. Um, and the 12, and on each street, on each side, the tree will be, uh, the tree will bear leaves that will actually be used as healing for the nations. Um, so literally from the beginning of scripture all the way to the end, we see this narrative and this affirmation of diversity as a gift from God. But the challenge is that we live in a nation that sees diversity as a problem to be solved rather than a gift to be embraced. And so what is a Christian supposed to do in the midst of that dichotomy? Um, everything around us talks about diversity as, oh, well, we learn to... We, we learn to be tolerant, or we learn to um, navigate diversity, but we never really see diversity as a gift, something that enriches us, something that makes us better, fuller, truer. And the reality of scripture is that no culture, no people group is able to fully bear witness to the image of God and the goodness of God in isolation. It is only through communing with the other that we actually learn some of our own ethnic, um, cultural blind spots, and we become more well-rounded and understand the various ways in which God has shown up in the world and actually been a liberating force of bringing, bringing people out of cultural captivity into a new reality where we can truly live um, in the way that we hear in Galatians where it talks about there's no slave, no free, no male, no female, no Greek, no Jew. Because um, the reality is, if you look at around the room, we are all Christians, but there are clearly still men and women in this room. So Paul didn't mean that once you become a Christian that you become this genderless being. Um, Paul meant that the social stratifications that the world operated by have no place within the body of Christ. And the hierarchies that came with slaves and free, men and women, Jew and Gentile, can't have a place within the body of Christ if we're truly going to be followers of Christ. Um, so we're called to a countercultural witness about what it means to do life together. And if we don't live into that countercultural witness, then the world ceases to know that God is a different God, calling God's people to a different lived reality. Amen. And so when we press into scripture, that's one of the examples that we see where um, God's trying to cultivate something different within God's people. Um, but another way to actually read scriptures, one of the motifs of scripture, is that God is working in the world to pursue multi-ethnicity and diversity within the church, and God's people are actually working against this. So this is seen primarily through Israel who mistook their chosenness for an exclusive relationship with God. God chose Israel as God's chosen people, but God's intention for Israel was always to let the rest of the world know who God was through them as a vehicle. They were supposed to bear witness, and through that witness, other people were supposed to come and learn about the goodness of God and come and join the people of God. 
But with Israel constantly didn't understand this, and they would push back against God as God was trying to expand the kingdom because they saw their chosenness as an exclusive relationship, not as the way in which God was choosing to operate and make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. So, again, we see this in Israel, but we also see this other places, uh, um, or through more particular through individuals and Christian leaders oftentimes. Um, so when we look at like the book of Jonah, and we look at Jonah, most people think about Jonah as just a little children's story that we tell little kids to keep them entertained. Um, but the reality of Jonah is that Jonah had a call to go deliver the word of the Lord to a people who had oppressed his people. Um, Jonah was a prophet who was actually supposed to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was known as a bloodthirsty nation who ruled with vengeance and violence. But God had a liberating message for Nineveh. God wanted to redeem and restore Nineveh, and God chose to bring that message to the prophet Jonah. But Jonah, for good reason, was scared. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Uh, he knew what Ninevites had done to his own people. He knew um, he knew the, the risk of going to Nineveh. But then there was another piece where he had a prejudice towards Ninevites. And he said that, you know what? I don't think that he deserved the freedom and the liberation of the grace and mercy that God offers. I think they should actually have to punish, be punished for the things that they've done. So I'm not going to go. So he gets in the river, I mean, in the boat, and he tries to go somewhere else. And God says, you can't run from me. <laughs> um, and, you know, the whole story about the well is what ultimately happens. And so I think, you know, there's this way in it, it gets reduced down to this children's story. But it's just real narrative for us to take seriously when we try to run away from the will and the mission of God based off our own prejudices. There are real consequences for that. Um, and we can't outrun God. Um, as much as we try, some of us try through, you know, trying to focus in and be super successful in our careers, try to redefine ourselves that way. Some of us turn to vices and addictions. There's all these different ways in which we try to run from God and to call upon our lives. But there's no way that we can escape God. And some of us can waste way too much of our time trying to do that. Um, it'd be so much easier if we just submitted and realized that God is actually good, true God and knows better for us than we could ever know for ourselves. Um, but that's a hard message to learn, so I'm not just saying that, like, oh, you should just wake up tomorrow and start living like that. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a process. It's a, it's a dying to self. It's, um, that's what, you know, the metaphors of crucifixion and reality, uh, crucifixion and resurrection are. You have to learn the ways in which you have ceased to give your life to God, the ways in which you have not let God be Lord over all of your life, and actually identify those ways and start to name them so you can ultimately put them to death so Christ can rule over everything. Again, it's a process. Christianity is a process. It's not a destination. Um, every day we learn something different. We press in in a new way, and uh, we learn to submit more fully, hopefully. Um, and so, but I think it's important to highlight again, Nineveh, um, as this place in which persecution, death, destruction, and justice, oppression came from. So there's a very real reason why Jonah doesn't want to go there, but Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire. And so I want to highlight this because 
the whole Bible is written in the context of uh, captivity, um, of Israel actually being subjected to the imperial rule of someone else. Um, and so Israel is a pe oppressed people who knows what it means to live under the weight of oppression. And I think that's important um, in this country where so many people live and feel like oppressed people who constantly live under the weight of oppression, um, be, it, uh, be it women, be it people of color, be it other ways in which people are marginalized. You feel that you're living under the weight of oppression. And we need to know that God knows that reality. God identifies with that reality. And God constantly uses people who have been on the margins of society to actually bring truth and liberation to the broader society. And so we'll look at a couple of passages today that particularly talk about that. But uh, I want to highlight this definition of empire because to me this concept is really important for our understanding of scripture. Um, so this definition comes from a theologian named Daniel Grudy who wrote the book uh, Globalization, Spirituality, and Justice, Theology and Global Perspective. Um, he says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first in a series of empires, including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the weak. The notion of empire often describes political entities, but it is not li limited to them. Symbolically, empire represents any power structure that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone, or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. So when I talk about empire, I want you to keep that definition in your mind. Um, it is a power structure that is actually working against the will of God, and it cultivates when it's within its people uh, uh, a way of living that is antithetical to the gospel. And so when we see like in Romans 12 where it tells us that we have to be renewed uh, by our minds and not be conformed to the ways of this world, that's a direct parallel to the way in which empire is teaching us to live and be. And scripture is saying like we cannot conform to those things if we're going to be truly representatives of Jesus Christ and ambassadors of reconciliation. And so when we think about this in regards to race, this nation, our world, teaches us to think about race in very anti-gospel ways. Um, it teaches us to think about belonging, who we see ourselves as connected to in very anti-gospel ways. Um, the middle class is taught to think about themselves as only connected to other middle or upper class people. They're not so taught to see themselves as connected to poor people, people on the margins. Ethnically, racially, we're taught to see ourselves as connected to people who are of our same tribe and language, but we're not taught to see ourselves as connected to the other. Um, and so there are, are ways in which I want us to really grapple with the fact that this world in which we live teaches us to behave, think, and see ourselves as related to people in very worldly ways that are actually antithetical to the scriptures and what God is calling us to as a multi-ethnic people. And so we see this again. Um, I just want to just help you see, like, this is a consistent thing throughout Scripture. So all throughout the book of Acts, the book of Romans, we see the church trying to work and work out what it means to embrace God's plan for multi-ethnicity. All over and over again, we see people who saw themselves at the center, particularly Israel, resisting God's expansion of the kingdom of God. 
Um, we see this with uh, the story of Cornelius, where you know the, the eunuch was not supposed to be part of what God was doing in the world. God was not supposed to be expanding the kingdom in that way. We see this with the story of the Canaanite woman when she encounters Jesus, and we see that's the the story that really represents the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. But you see all these people in these passages, these Christian leaders, they fail to comprehend what God is doing. So they have this kind of resistance to the expansion of the kingdom. Um, and so I want to say today, like, this shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine because we still see Christian leaders today who are resisting the expansion of the kingdom of God, the ways in which God is calling the church to be this multi-ethnic communion of saints in which we are bearing witness to something different. Um, I think in my community, um, one of the ways this was most crystallized recently, um, there's been a lot of dialogue around what happened in Charlottesville. And the harsh reality is that a number of people who were out there protesting turned around on Sunday morning and went to their churches. And they saw no contradiction between the witness that they were bearing on Friday and Saturday and what they were going to church to say that they were doing worshiping Jesus. And so there are real ways in which we have cultivated a Christianity that is so weak within our nation that people can see themselves as pledging allegiance to two things that are rival each other. People pledge allegiance to a kind of racial superiority, and then they say they pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, this isn't a new narrative. We know throughout our history, you know, from slavery to Native American genocide to the Chinese Exclusionary Act and the Japanese internment camps. We see these realities, racialized realities, in which people who identified as Christians were living into a worldly narrative of race and multi-ethnicity being a problem as opposed to a gift from God. We see the ways in which um, the ways of this world have actually divided us and prohibited us from being one in a way in which the world will know that there is something distinctive about who we are because of the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. And so um, I'm going to bring this down a little bit now and press into um, two texts a little bit more explicitly. But before that, I think there is a way in which we have to understand that people on the margins, because they're on the margins, have a way in which there is an empathy, a sympathy that is uh, kind of developed within them in a way in which they can see other people being marginalized in ways that people who have never experienced marginalization usually can't see. There's a blindness to the other. There's a blindness to those who are being persecuted. Um, and so I think for me, one of the ways I see this most explicitly is through the life and narrative of Moses. And so we're going to turn now and look a little bit about Moses' story. Um, and so most people know, um, so I, let me preface this. Um, all the statistics tell us actually that most people in church don't actually read their Bible from Sunday to Sunday. Um, like literally people who show up to church, I think it's like 78% of the people who come to church every week don't read their Bible from Sunday to Sunday. So there are some ways when I preach, I make assumptions that people know certain things. But I'm actually recently starting to do that less and less because I'm realizing <laughs> that it's probably not true. Um, and so if I talk over some things that you know, just... Chalk it up to that. Um, and so in Exodus 1, we see that um, 
Egypt uh, is the empire in which we're talking about. Again, I talked about all of it being written under the confines of the empire. This is the empire in which Israel is subjected to, particularly the Hebrew people. And so, the Israel, Israel, I mean, Egypt is enslaving the Hebrews. Um, and they're starting to get worried, the scripture says. It says, look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become too, too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies against us, fight and leave the country. So there is this way in which we see the story of Moses begins with the ruling power, the colonizing power of Egypt being really afraid that their slaves are actually about to leave them. And they're not going to be able to have this economic superpower that they have that is predicated upon oppression and justice and death and destruction. And so um, out of fear, Pharaoh says that you know you have to kill all the male babies, uh, all the Hebrew male babies that are coming. So literally Moses comes into the world with a price on his head. Like literally he is being... Um, trying to be purged out of the world. Um, and so I had some, a friend of mine who says that actually, you know, when we look at this text, this would have literally been contemporary uh, manifestation of uh, kind of Hebrews Lives Matter campaign would have been going on. <laughs> because literally everything in Egypt is saying that Hebrews' lives do not matter. The only way in which they matter is if we can exploit them uh, and oppress them and reap financial benefits from their oppression. If they are not making us money, literally they're disposable people. Um, and so that's the context in which Moses is born. Uh, Moses' mom of course, any mother is going to love their kids so dearly. Um, if you live under that kind of weight of oppression and you live under systemic injustice, meaning that there's literally laws that are saying that you have to kill people based off their ethnic identity, that's a systemic injustice. Um, no mother is going to submit to that. Um, any mother is going to try to find a way to resist that because she loves her child. She knows her child is God-given. She knows that God has a purpose and identity for this child, why would she submit to this injustice? So she breaks the law. Um, she keeps her child hidden, puts him in a basket, and just entrusts Moses to the spirit, um, which had to be so hard. But she, she says, God is a good God. God is a sovereign God. God is a faithful God. I'm going to put my child into this basket and believe that God will um, take care of the child. And God does. But it's ironic that the only place that Moses can actually find sanctuary, the only place where Moses can ultimately be saved comes from the same household in which the decree to kill him comes from. <laughs> so it's the subversive way in which God works in the world. Um, and so God stirs something within Moses' daughter where she sees this Hebrew baby, even though she's been indoctrinated in a household that has told her that Hebrews' lives don't matter. When she saw this child, there was a connection there. There was an empathy there. And so she tells her slave people, which again, now I'm not, she's still implicated in oppression. She got slaves. So, so I'm not saying that she's this liberated, you know, beyond. she's still implicated. She got slaves. And she tells her Hebrew slaves, she said, go get that child, raise that child, take care of it. I'll pay you to do that. And so they do that. But at a certain point, the scriptures tell us they give it back to Moses' daughter. So at this point, she's really living boldly, 
counterculturally. Her father is the one who says that all Hebrew babies must die, but she brings a Hebrew child into his house and says, I'm going to raise this child in your house. Um, and so I know for some of us, that kind of notion of disrespecting your elders is really challenging the struggle of life. It's really what the pastor is saying, but that's what the scripture says happened. And so we see here, there's this way in which um, God is trying to foster a countercultural ethos of compassion, mercy, solidarity, um, our ability to see ourselves as connected to other people. That counters the way that the world is teaching us to believe. And so Moses, after a while, it says, he goes out and he starts to, um, now at this point, Moses, again, is being raised in the household that is, again, pro proclaiming the Hebrew lives don't matter. So he had to have some of that within his own formation. You can't live in Pharaoh's house. This is what Pharaoh declares. And some of that's not being taught to you, um, trying to be discipled into you. But he goes out and it says, a few years later, he sees the oppression of his people. And in the midst of being raised in an Egyptian house, he never loses, fact of the, loses sight of the fact that he is a Hebrew. He is different. He might enjoy the benefits of the palace, but he is not one of them. And so when he goes out and he sees the Hebrews actually being oppressed, he sees them actually being struck with the whip, he gets so enraged that he ultimately ends up killing this Egyptian overseer. Um, and in the midst of that happening, you know, he, breathes, he flees for his life and runs away. He's like, somebody's going to find out. They're going to try to kill me. Pharaoh does find out. He puts a decree out to kill Moses, so he runs away. Um, but there is this way in which, because Moses' life was marked by marginality, oppression, uh, being the other, when he goes and he sees the other being oppressed, he sees himself as identified with the other. Um, and so Moses, all this fast forwards to the passage that we're really going to focus on. Um, is Numbers 12. So this is the passage I want to get to. Um, but I think that formation of Moses' life and that background for Moses' life is really critically important to this story. So I actually don't have it on here, so I'm going to turn this way. Excuse my back. Um, it says, uh, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of, you, two of them stepped out, forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But I'll give this to somebody to fix and I can keep talking because I know the rest. Um, and so, so, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> He is faithful to all my house. Um, with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. 
and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent was removed from over the tent, um, Miriam was leopardous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam and beheld she was leopardous. And Aaron said to Moses, "O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly. Because of what we have foolishly done, we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away." when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, she would. Uh, should she not be shamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, people set out from Hezroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So, let's look at what's going on in this passage. So, first, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but I was actually shocked and amazed that I grew up in a I grew up in an African-American church probably until I was about 12, and I've been doing the multi-ethnic thing the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> but I was actually shocked and amazed that the first person that pointed this out, this passage out to me, was a white professor I had in seminary. Um, it was a white male, and he was teaching us, and he said, it's amazing to me as much work as we do around multi-ethnicity, diversity, trying to talk about racism, within the church and outside the church that no one ever preaches about this passage. He said this is clearly the first example of skin color prejudice in the Bible. He said the scripture is very explicitly clear in verse 1 why they had a problem with Moses. They had a problem with Moses because he married a Cushite. So what does that mean? What was a Cushite? Who were they? Why was this so problematic? So when we actually press into the text, um, so I don't do it wrong, even though I need to go. Sorry, there's an up and a down and a right and a left, and I've been pressing the up and down. I need to go right. So the Kushites were born, uh, they were from the region of Kush. Kush was notorious for being a region where people were known for their black skin. Um, there is another a reference to the distinctive color of Kushites uh, found in scripture only one in Jeremiah 13, 23, which reads, can the Ethiopian, which again in this word is the same uh, he, uh, Hebrew word that is used um, for Kushite, in this passage, change his or her skin, uh, or the leopard change their spots. Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? So literally, there is this overt um, emphasis. There is this emphasis being placed on her skin tone. Um, and the reason in which Miriam and Aaron have a problem with her is they have some anti-blackness. Like that's what's going on in this passage. Um, and they cannot believe that Moses would choose somebody out of his own culture, but particularly somebody from Cush, um, this 
stigmatized region. But there's this way in which Moses' own marginality, his own experience of being the other, allows him to be able to go over this cultural norm and actually see that God actually had called him into relationship to the stigmatized other. Um, Miriam and Aaron didn't have that same experience. They didn't have the same formation that Moses had. And so there are ways in which they were still bound into their, their cultural norms. Um, and the reality is we all have cultural norms. We all have people groups that we think about in that way. And if we're honest, if we were to marry them, we know either our parents or our friends would look at us in a certain way because you just don't marry those people. Um, we see Moses here marry that person. Um, and there is a problem uh, starting off in the community because of it. But what's interesting is that I think there are ways in which um, we've come to think about racism in a certain way. Um, racism, or in this case, ethnocentrism, because the reality is race is a social construction that didn't exist back then. Um, uh, and so race only has the power and the social political significance that we give to it um, because it's not biologically real. Um, and so it's a social construction, but ethnicity is this real thing. But in scripture, ethnicity or ethnocentrism functions in the same way racism does for us today. And so in this, we actually see that bigotry is not a new thing. It's been around forever. Um, it's one of the perpetual consequences of our fallenness. Um, racism doesn't have to involve physical harm or even like slander in this way. It said that they had a problem with Moses because it, it doesn't say they did anything to his wife. It doesn't say that they caused her any physical harm. But clearly, racism is still in play in this passage. Um, racism doesn't. Uh, racism is a sin one which God feels very strongly about. Um, there are consequences for racism, just like there are consequences for any other sin. So in this passage, we see um, God sees what's going on, and he calls the three leaders out. And it's, it's important that Miriam and Aaron are leaders in the church. They're not just anybody. These are the leaders of the church, of the community. And they themselves have this racial ethnic blind spot that they can't get over to press into the multi-ethnic diversity in which God is trying to create within their community. Um, and God calls Aaron, Aaron and Miriam out with Moses, and he calls them to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, and then ultimately says they, they have to endure the punishment that their sin invoked. Um, as God departed from them, Miriam's skin becomes like a stillborn child, uh, like leopardess. And so I think it's really interesting that so this is an example of what leprosy looks like. Um, I mean, there were some much more gruesome pictures. I thought this was light enough that I could share this. Um, but literally, it makes your skin kind of albino white. Um, and so it's interesting that she has a problem with Moses' black wife. And God said, you think white is so great. <laughs> I'll show you and give you that and then ultimately she has to go outside in the community for seven days because anybody who was connected with leprosy was considered not clean and so God's people were called to be holy like God is called holy God's people weren't supposed to be around in cleanliness um, and so it's interesting though in scripture um, leprosy more than any other disease in scripture is connected to sin. Um, and 
here are the rays y. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that um, God responds to Miriam um, in this way. Um, there are some other layers to this. Like some people can say, well, why didn't Aaron get any consequences? Like those are great questions. I don't have the answer for them. <laughs> but I mean, in part, one could say, because Aaron is the one who turns to Moses and actually confesses his sin and actually like asks for forgiveness. Uh, we don't see that said through Miriam. I don't want to read into the text too much on that. But I just want to highlight the fact that like, there are real consequences and there are ways in which this disease in particular in the Old Testament is connected to sin. Um, but I, I want to go back to this picture. So this is a picture, I was in Israel about two years ago on a peacemaking um, trip and learned what does it mean to be an everyday peacemaker in some of the most intense conflicts in the world. And so we were in Israel, Palestine, went over to the West Bank. Um, but this was at the... Um, Holocaust Museum, uh, and I found this. And so, I want you to look at this picture. This picture is supposed to be Moses and his mother. Um, and then, this next picture is supposed to be Moses and the Egyptian that he kills, um, who was oppressing the Hebrew. What do you notice about both of these pictures, particularly about Moses? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Moses is a Hebrew who shouldn't be, he should look something like his mama, right? You would think. And then in this passage, he should be actually lighter than the Egyptian that he's killing. But there is this way in which this anti-blackness, this way in which we have started to believe that whiteness and its association to the godliness, um, this way in which this stuff slowly but surely starts to creep into our imaginations, even in our artistic depictions. And so it's funny, when I was looking at artistic depictions of this passage, I could not find one path, one artistic depiction that actually showed Moses' wife as distinctively dark-skinned and different than Moses. That's clearly what the text is saying, but there's ways in which, the way in which we talk about our Christianity, we understand our faith has been so encased within the ways of this world, the way that they teach us about race, that we can't understand darkness as truly connected to God in a way uh, that we, default understand whiteness is connected to divinity and God. Um, and so, so, but I think what's important about this passage, most important for me actually, I think, let's just be honest, as people of color who endure racism at some point in our lives, if the passage just stopped here, we'd be good. We'd be like, they were racist, God gave them a consequence, God go fix them, and we can move on together after that happens. We just sit here and wait for God to fix them, and it's all good. But actually in this passage, we see that once Aaron turns to Moses, Moses goes from being the one who was oppressed to someone who's an advocate for the people who oppressed him. Um, and Moses is the one who actually calls out to God and asks God to give them grace and to actually... Uh, uh, spare Miriam from enduring this pain, but God says no. She has to endure the consequence of her sin, but 
she needs to be reintegrated into society. So I think it's really powerful that God tells the community here that the people of God can't move forward until the person who is violated is reintegrated into the society. Um, I think that's a really hard message for people of color to hear sometimes that when we endure racism or we endure injustice, that we actually have to be humble enough to be open to turn to God and actually petition for grace on their behalf once they've injured us. Um, and in this passage in particular, the whole community had to pause and wait seven days just because she actually was saying. But there's this way in which you have to understand that we're not truly and fully the people of God without one another. Um, and there are ways in which our brothers and sisters in Christ are not going to always act like our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't mean that they're not still our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and again, it's a hard message. I'm preaching to myself right now. Um, because for somebody, just to use Charlottesville again, for me to encounter somebody who I saw their face on the news, like literally know that that's their participation in that, and if I actually encounter them in community and these people are bearing and saying they're Christians, like for me, it's easy to just be like, no, you're not. Um, you're clearly not a Christian because that's antithetical to God. But this passage says that I have to have a certain disposition of humility towards them, that I'm willing to turn and pray for those people and actually God to ask God to change their hearts and actually be willing to walk alongside of them, that that's truly where they're trying to go. Now, there are clearly some people who were at Charleston, Charlottesville or wherever who claim to be Christian, but they don't want to walk with you, and they, they really have ulterior motives. I don't think that this passage is talking about those people, because here you see Miriam and Aaron respond with contrition. Once they're called out on what they did, they actually have a contrite heart, and they want to turn back to God. I don't think this passage is saying people who just really don't give a care about you at all, and are going to continue to try to kill and persecute you. But it is saying that we are all sinners. We all fall short. We all have ethnic, cultural blind spots. We all, in some way, shape, or form, have lived into racism, sexism, classism. Like, these are realities. We are fallen people. We succumb to these things. In the midst of succumbing to these things, the broader Christian community is called to have grace with us. And we are called to learn how to try to live together in the midst of our shortcomings. Um, and so I think this passage is a beautiful reminder that when these, these ethnic, cultural, social divisions are real, the people of God are not immune to them. And there are consequences for us living into that counter narrative. But as a people of God, we're supposed to have a certain disposition that welcomes people in, back in once they have fallen, because none of us are perfect. Um, and then I'll close with this last uh, passage um, where it talks about um, where Jesus is actually getting crucified on the cross. Um, he leaves his mother behind. Um, and when he leaves his mother to behind, he says to his disciples, um, this is your mother. And what happens is there are ethnic cultural lines that are being crossed there. And what I believe Jesus is actually challenging us with is can we see somebody who doesn't come from our bloodline as truly being our family? Because when you think about the cultural sacrifices, the familial uh, financial sacrifices that you make. We all know that there's just certain things that you do for family that you don't do for other people. 
what does it mean that Jesus actually comes and he transforms our definition of family? Um, the reality is that when we actually baptize into the body of Christ, we're actually baptized into a mosaic, multicultural family. When we come out of the water, it's no longer our ethnic bloodlines that define us, but our baptismal bloodlines are what's supposed to define our family. So I had a seminary professor, and this is probably the thing that stuck out most to me from seminary, all, all my teachings. He said, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. He said that that's everything except the scriptures. The scriptures actually tell us that the baptismal waters are actually thicker than blood, and they are actually what define who our family is. If the body of Christ were actually to live as if the people who identify with Christianity across the globe, across our city, and our own neighborhoods were truly our family, if we lived, loved, and sacrificed for them the way that we do for people within our ethnic bloodlines, how radical would the body of Christ be? How transformative for our cities would we actually be? And the reality is that's actually the call of scripture, as hard as it may seem. Um, we are called to be salt and light in the world, and the way that we actually do that is through our oneness, when we live into our oneness by understanding that we are called to be a baptismal people, not a people who are locked into biological bloodlines in the way that the rest of the world is. And so I'll pray. And then we'll have a God, I'd just like to thank you for the examples in Scripture that actually help us work through the muck and the mire of this world. Um, I'd like to thank you for examples of people like Moses and most explicitly your son Jesus who teach us how to navigate some of the some of the tough terrains of uh, communing with people who are different than us. Uh, it's challenging, it's not easy, um, but it is the call of faith. And we know that you have given us the power of the resurrection within us through the spirit of God to direct us and lead us and guide us as we try to navigate these terrains. And so we thank you that you don't ask us to do, us, do this within our own strength or within our own wisdom because we know that we are incapable, but we know that you have given us an advocate. And so I, I like to pray and ask that you make us more dependent and rely upon that advocate and that we trust ourselves to you fully.